0: We've all got the disease, the disease of being finite, death is the basis of all hope.
1: Welcome to Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Episode 29C. It's for Christian and that's good enough for me. That's right, ladies and gent, you've reached the third and final Exploding Heads solo cast. I'm your host, Christian Luciani. My usual cohorts, Dave and Brandon, are currently away at Sunny Acres Farm in good old Athens, New York, trying to pawn off Black Philip to the highest bidder. One thing's for sure. He'll make one tender goat dish with all the bass scenes Brandon's done over the last nine months. (laughs) Now, before I get into anything else, I'd like to congratulate Dave and Brandon on their solo cast. I think they both knocked it out of the park, and I only hope that I make it three in a row for you. I'm definitely looking forward to getting back and recording the next episode with them. But until then, you're stuck with with me. me. Tonight, we talk Horror Canadiana. I'm going to take you through a brief history, followed by a director exposé, and then list by top 10 fave Canadian horror films. So sit back and relax. If you're at work, look busy. Always have something in your hand. One thing I learned long ago is the worker standing holding nothing is considered a slacker, whilst the one holding a box is busy. What's in the box? It doesn't matter. It could be Tracy's head. It could be nothing. The box equals productivity, people. Now, before we cannonball into all things cinema horrifique from my home and native land, I would like to do a quick update. 2016 watches. But wait, A, it's 2017. And B, you already did your top 16 of 2016. I mean, what the fuck, Christian? All right, guys, look. I didn't watch like 2,000 movies with rewatches like the Dynamic Duo over here. I missed a few. Hell, I still need to see The Wailing, Demon, Trinity, Busan, to name a few. Anyway, this is what I did see from 2016 since the top 16 show. Good tidings. Ugh. I hate to admit, not a fan of this movie. It was... I was quite disappointed with it, unfortunately. It was uh, it was like a five out of 10 for me. The Blair Witch remake, a lot of hate for this movie. I, I don't know where the hate came from. I I mean, hey, I was not a found footage fan until Dave put me up to that challenge. So I just started loving these movies and this, these style of films. Uh, it was a solid seven out of 10. I thought it was really good. The Purge election year, to be honest, I think the whole series is great. Uh, this one's just as good as the other two, seven and a half out of 10 and I saw The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Now, that movie was amazing. Uh, I gave it an eight and a half and a 10. I even at one point switched my top 10 around after we did the show. It's a great movie, it deserves to be seen. Some people have saying that they feel that the second half sort of goes more traditional, ghost story, and it kind of falls off. I didn't think so at all. I thought the tension kept up right to the end and I was right there with it and I loved it. Uh, Another one was in the deep or 40 meters down or whatever the hell they want to call it now Phenomenal, I mean, this is everything that I was kind of hoping I'd get from the shallows and the shallows was For lack of a better was shallow in comparison Uh, in the deep was just beautifully made it was a freaking scary movie and I Loved it 9 out of 10 now. What am I looking forward to in 2017? well, okay for those of you that maybe don't know i'm a huge friday the 13th fanatic Uh, i mean i've got that other podcast me you know by the name of tgif 13 shameless plug it's on horophilia so my buddy and i then started that way back in november 2013. anyway that brings me to the excitement for both the friday the 13th video game and the new movie now call me crazy i'm being an eternal optimist here i think we're going to see the movie this year I know Dave is like, yeah, I'll see when I believe it and he'll quit podcasting if it happens, which I hope he doesn't quit podcasting if it happens. But I just want to see this movie. And I think October 13th, 2017 is when we're going to finally see another Friday the 13th on the big screen. Now, the video game... I'm equally excited about. I can't wait to play it. BC sent me a link for the the beta pack. I could not get that thing to work for the life of me. I run a Mac. It wouldn't work on Mac. I use my work PC. It wasn't fast enough. But I watched the online videos, and they look sweet. So I can't wait to play that. Film-wise, I'm extremely excited to see that The Devil's Candy, Sean Burns' follow-up to his 2009 The Loved Ones, which... You know, I might add as a side note, was my favorite horror movie of that year. Anyway, The Devil's Candy will finally be released this March. I cannot wait to see this. Uh, Another one that due out this year, Deathgasm 2. I mean, the first one made my top 10. It was a blast, so I can't wait for the sequel. Uh, I'm also looking forward to Raw, Safe Neighborhood, Fashionista, and Don't Kill It. Uh, after horophilia Jason Lloyd's strong recommendations. I can't wait. Uh, Lastly, I'm ecstatic to hear that February, aka The Black Coat's or whatever, will finally hit theaters March 31st after like a sneak peek on DirecTV, February 16th. I mean, okay, that was my controversial number one film for 2016. Well, controversial because of no official release date. So because that's a 2017 release now, I look forward to seeing it as your number one next year, everybody. (laughs) <laughs> now, podcast shout-outs have become commonplace with our show. I don't want this to seem like a cop-out, but I do want to simplify this by thanking Jason Lloyd and everyone on the Horrorphilia Network. We all have a passion for horror. We're a community. Obviously, this means we're not going to always agree, but that's what makes it fun and exciting. Now, with it being so fresh in the new year, I just want to wish everybody a healthy and great horror movie-filled 2017. Cheers, Now let's get started. Welcome to A Canadian Horror Story. I'd like to start by referencing the following articles and authors that helped me shape, in my opinion, the quintessential historical look at Canadian horror. Scary, eh? The History of Canadian Horror, written by William Brownridge, October 1st, 2012. The ABCs of Canadian Film, A Crash Course in Essential Canadian Cinema by Colin McNeil, published June 12, 2014. And for those of you wanting to explore even further, you can also check out They Came From Within, A History of Canadian Horror Cinema, published March 15, 2004, by author Calum Vatsdell. You can even track down Nightmare in Canada, Canadian Horror on Film. 2004, directed by Janet Adcock. <laughs> Sorry, it's Janet Adcock. Of course, I fuck up her first name, but I get the cock part right. <laughs> Canada's first feature-length horror film was The Mask. Smokin'. No, not the 1994 Jim Carrey live-action cartoon but a 1961 drive-in flick directed by Montreal-born filmmaker Julian Rothman. Shot in Toronto in Depth Dimension, The Mask, Eyes of Hell, holds the double honor of being Canada's first horror flick and 3D movie. When Dr. Alan Barnes dons the cursed mask in the film, the audience was supposed to don their 3D glasses and experience the nightmarish world with him. With its effectively creepy acid trip light sequences, the mask an audience, and was also commercially successful in the American market. Lost on film for years, it was recently restored and screened at the 2015 Toronto International Film Festival. Enter one-time director Eric Santamaria's 1967's Playgirl Killer. A sleazy tale about an artist who has beautiful women model for him before killing them. Filmed in shivering color, and that's color with a U, people, the film also goes by titles of Decoy for Terror and Portrait of Fear. Unfortunately, I've yet to find a copy of this film, but the trailer is up on YouTube, and I've read that it's Canada's answer to Herschel Gordon Lewis. Don't move! Don't move. In 1973, director Ivan Reitman—that's right, Ivan Meatball slash Ghostbusters Reitman—cannonballed into the world of man-eating horror with *Cannibal Girls*, featuring future SCTV stars Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin as Clifford and Gloria, the vacationing duo end up at a restaurant run by Reverend Alex St. John and his three seductive female waitresses. While the film's not particularly gory, there's plenty of nudity, which made this a repeat player on late night city TV, and yours truly, a repeat viewer. While I haven't seen this one in well over 15 years, I've probably watched it a dozen times on TV in my life, and it's definitely the first Canadian horror film I saw start to finish. Oh, what came out in 1974? Well, other than me, (laughs) how's about a little slasher? Oh, wait, sorry, a psychological horror film entitled Black Christmas. Directed by Bob, yeah, that's right, Bob Porky's A Christmas Story Clark and also known as Silent Night, Evil Night and Stranger in the House, the film earned $4 million at the box office with initially mixed reviews. Predating Halloween by four years, Black Christmas found critical praise and credit as the first slasher film many years later. We also got the film's death dream and deranged in 1974. Death Dream, another Bob Clark film, is an effective take on a zombie picture. It also marks the first film Tom Savini worked on. Deranged was made by Jeff Gillen and Alan Ormsby, friends of Bob Clark, and contributors to most of his films. It also featured effects by Savini and is based on the case of Ed Gein. If you haven't seen either of these two movies, check them out. Enter David Cronenberg. In 1975, he released They Came From Within, a.k.a. Shivers. He then followed this with Rabid in 1977, The Brood in 1979, and Scanners in 1981. Now, I'll be coming back to the films of David Cronenberg later, as he is the focus of tonight's director expose. So, don't get your panties in a bunch when you think I've skipped over Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly, and Dead Ringers. I'll get there. Besides, we're still in 1975, and it was an important year in Canadian film history for another reason. Canadian law made it financially attractive to produce films in the country. It was called the Capital Cost Allowance, CCA, a tax shelter where investors could deduct their investment in a Canadian film from their income. So, in 1975, it was raised from 60 to 100%, resulting in a spike of film production and some of the most influential horror films resulted. The aforementioned Cronenberg films, a 1977 movie called Rituals, aka The Creeper, that Brandon spoke about on his solo cast last week, as well as, well, a few others. Film writer Paul Karobe coined the term exploitation in 1999 to sum up horror in Canada up to this point and its resulting effect. Canada became king of the slashers. How king? Prepare to have your mind blown. About Christmas 74, bomb night 1980, terror trade 1980, funeral home 80, my brother, valentine 81, happy birthday to me 81, the birthday Humongous, 82. Curtains, 83. Killer Party, 86. Hello, Mary Lou. Prom night two, 1987. Wings, how's our wings? How's our wings? How's our The Carpenter, 88. American Gothic, 88. Prom night three, 1990. Prom night four, 92. Happy Hell Night, 92. Slashers, 2001. Santa Sleigh, 2005. Black Christmas, 2006. Left footed Dead. 2007, C, 2007, Prom Night, 2008, Gunner Balls, 2008, Smash Cut, 2009, Chain, 2012, American Mary, 2012, Silent Night, 2012, Disco Path, 2013, The Editor, 2014, Girl House, 2014, Gunner Balls 2, Balls Deep, 2015. Okay, I'm sure I'm missing a few slashers here and there, and some of you might not even consider some of those films slashers, but you get the picture. And while not all of these were tax-shelter films, you can see that they kept Canadian horror alive and kicking. Some of these were also U.S. co-productions, like The Burning, for example. But most listed are 100% Canadian beef. Prom Night, and Terror Train, both released in 1980, helped establish Jamie Lee Curtis's Scream Queen extraordinaire, which just covered Terror Train on episode 28. Now, while it's a film that I enjoy, I feel that it missed its full potential and didn't take advantage of its train setting. My Bloody Valentine, 1981, takes place in the fictional town of Valentine's Bluffs, in reality, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. This is a perfect example of a slasher that takes full advantage of its setting, this time a mineshaft. The director, or or set dresser, also lovingly managed to cram as much moosehead beer into the film as possible. Happy Birthday to Me features six of the most bizarre murders you'll ever see. While a little long for its own good, I mean, you'll wonder if there's an actual birthday party coming or not, it's nevertheless an effective slasher. And for nostalgia's sake, The poster art used to scare the shit out of me as a kid, whilst I wandered around the local video store, looking for what to rent. Curtains is a fairly forgotten slasher, but it has a super cool setup. A prestigious director invites actresses to his remote mansion to audition for his next movie, only for them to be killed off, one by one, by a masked killer. Funny, that sounds like the slasher film idea I had when we talked about that a few episodes back, too. Guess I ripped it off. (laughs) Interesting fact, the movie started production in 1980 and over the course of three years went through multiple rewrites and reshoots that the director removed his name upon release in 1983. Gutterballs, 2008, is an unapologetic new wave grindhouse slasher. While gleefully gory, the movie is still a chore to watch as the direction is flat, the characters are totally unlikable, and every second word of dialogue seems to be FUCK! There's even a long scene at the beginning that makes me feel the way Brandon did when he watched Death Squirt Service last year. I know some of you will embrace this movie, but I just couldn't get into it. I did like the ending, though. And no, I haven't seen the sequel, but that balls-deep subtitle is admittedly hilarious. Now, I won't be talking about the whole list of slashers in detail in this show for a couple of reasons. First off... You can check out my breakdown, commentaries, whatever the hell it is that I do uh, for Black Christmas, Prom Night, My Bloody Valentine, The Birding, and Happy Birthday to Me on my other show, TGIF 13. And we also covered My Bloody Valentine and Black Christmas Old and New more recently on Postmortem Radio. Secondly, 2017 is the year of the slasher. I know that some of you thought it was the year of the rooster, but for Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, it's... The year of the slasher. We're going to be covering a lot of slasher movies leading up to our top 50 slasher movies show near the end of 2017. Anyway, I'm sure a few of these other ones will pop up again later in the show. But for now, we move from slashers to monsters. In 1982, we got the killer rat movie Deadly Eyes, a.k.a. rats, infamous for using tongues in rat suits and for featuring toddler and senior deaths. (laughs) Deadly Eyes remains a nifty little creature feature. 1982 also marked the end of the 100% tax shelter films, following a shitload of abuses by producers who would make movies but wouldn't even bother releasing them. Just pop the money in, make the flick, and let it sit. Five, ten years, it didn't matter. Either way, they still got their 100% tax write-off. As a result, the federal government cut it back to 50% and then shit-canned the program altogether a few years later. Hell, maybe this explains 1988's The Brain, a wacky horror movie that I first caught on First Choice Super Channel. This was Canada's version of HBO at the time. All I remember from the movie is that David Gale from *Reanimator* is in it and that it was filmed 50 minutes away from where I grew up. Warning, this is one goofy flick for completists only. Oh, and I don't want to forget the 1986 PG-13 horror flick, The Gate. Although it hasn't aged very well, it's still worth checking out. The story follows two boys who accidentally unleash a bunch of mini-demons from a hole in their backyard. Directed by Tibor Takis, I hope that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he went on to direct, like, I, Mad Men in 1988, and The Gate 2 in 1990, and then a bunch of shit thereafter. Anyway, The Gate is definitely worth your time. As you can imagine, after the Tax Shelter collapse, Horror Canadiana took a swan dive in the 1990s. Well, it wasn't just in Canada. But as Dave always says, I digress. Direct-to-video was here, and it was popular, which resulted in a cavalcade of cheaply made movies. There was Prom Night 3 and 4, and Witchboard 3 as the quote-unquote recognizable flicks. And then there was a Canadian take on the vampire film, Blood and Donuts, in 1995. Although a little too abstract for its own good, it's definitely worthy of a watch. In 1997, Cube was released. Now, while more of a science fiction movie, it does have some pretty tense moments and a couple of standout gore effects. Definitely worth seeking out, especially if you're a fan of single-set movies like Circle that was just released in 2015. Cube was followed by two sequels. But trust me, you can skip them. The year 2000 was a game changer. Ginger Snaps was released. Commercially successful, critically acclaimed, and spawning two sequels, this indie film helped rejuvenate the genre in Canada. And it happens to be one hell of a werewolf movie as well. I still cursed my part-time job at the time as I was working when I got a call from a film buddy asking me if I wanted to come down to the set to see a wolf get hit by a car. I mean, that would have been something. That would have been awesome. But sadly, it wasn't to be. With horror back in action again, and horror festivals like Toronto After Dark, Fantasia Fest in Montreal, and even the midnight screenings at TIFF helping to showcase the new blood, uh, yeah, that's right, the branded new blood, you know, films like Land of the Dead, Silent Hill, Ponte Pool, Splice, horror comedies like Fido, Jack Brooks' Monster Slayer, Tucker and Dale vs. the Evil, Hobo with a Shotgun, Monster Brawl, which is like WWE meets classic Universal Monster movies, Father's Day, and Wolf Cop. Well, they got made and found an audience. A few other recent standouts is 2015's anthology film, reviewed on Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast Episode 2, and that's A Christmas Horror Story. Now, truth be told, I enjoyed this much more the first time. Seeing it again this past Christmas, it's still a fun flick, and definitely worth a watch, it's just not quite as good as I remember. The other two standouts are actually from Dave Z's Found Footage Challenge. The first one is Afflicted. This movie took me off guard. Didn't know what to expect, went in blind again, this is an 8 out of 10. The other is Grave Encounters. Now, I watched this before the challenge, but it was on his list. It was a standout for him, and I agree. And that one I score a 7 out of 10. Both of them are worthy of your time. Even more impressing is the newer onslaught of co-productions. I mean, a few of the Resident Evil movies are Canadian co-productions. Now, whether you love them or hate them... Resident Evil Retribution from 2012 has become the highest grossing Canadian film ever made. More satisfying for me is Martyrs, 2008. Yeah, that one. A French Canada co production filmed entirely in Quebec, Canada. And that's one of my all time favorite horror movies. You can check out our thoughts on that on episode 20, the French Extreme Revolution show. <laughs> We have 2013's Mama, a Canadian-Spain co-production, and that's a unique and creepy monster movie. More recently, 2015, The Witch. Yep, my number three for 2016, and of course, Dave's number one of the millennium. (laughs) Well, that's a super mashup of US, UK, Canada, and Brazil. Can I get a click? Can I get a clack? I think I'm worthy. How about this? February. Yeah, a.k.a. The Black Coat's Daughter. Now, this is a U.S.-Canada co-production. It was filmed in Kemptville, Ontario, and at the University of Guelph, less than an hour away from here. And as I already mentioned, this was my number one pick for Best Horror Movie of 2016. And even though I'm sure there are a ton of Canadian horror movies I still haven't seen, here's a short list of some of the newer titles that I'd like to check out. End of the Line, 2007, Antisocial 2013, Antisocial 2 2015, Bite 2015, The Drownsmen 2014, Ejeca 2014, Letter Out 2016. Now a good bunch of these are actually by a new crop of Canadian horror movie makers, Chad Archibald, Matt Wheel, Tony Burgess and uh, Cody Callahan. They seem to be very busy and I'm I'm looking forward to checking some of these newer films out. Oh, I really want to go into my top 10 right now because there's a lot of films that we haven't mentioned yet that uh, you might even be scratching and going, well, where the hell is this movie? What? And I think you're going to f- realize that they're there. But actually, I think I might keep you in suspense. We're going to shift gears a little bit and focus on the master of body horror. <laughs> I don't have a moral plan. I'm a Canadian. That quote as well as the one that opened the show are from none other than one of my favorite directors, David Cronenberg. Want a few mouth droppers? Here's Cronenberg on director M. Night Shyamalan. I hate that guy. Next question. (laughs) Cronenberg on Stanley Kubrick. I think I'm a more intimate and personal filmmaker than Kubrick ever was. That's why I find The Shining not to be a great film. I don't think he understood the horror genre. I don't think he understood what he was doing. There are some striking images in the book that he got, but I don't think he really felt it. In a weird way, although he's revered as a high-level cinematic artist, I think he was much more commercial-minded and was looking for stuff that would click and that he could get financed. I think he was very obsessed with that to an extent that I am not. Now, for the basis of this spotlight, I'm going to do a brief overview of his horror films from 1975 to 1988. His full filmography can be found on IMDb. There are many essays out there that deep dive into the psychology of his creations. This is more of a fanboy overview. Born March 15, 1943 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. His mother, a piano player. His father, a journalist. David graduated from the University of Toronto with a degree in literature after switching from the science department. Fascinated by a fellow student's film, 1966's Winter Kept Us Warm, by David Sector, this fueled a new passion for Cronenberg. What followed were two shorts, two arthouse films, Stereo and Crimes of the Future, and a collection of TV stints. He then partnered with Ivan Reitman. That's right, Ivan, Cannibal Girls, Reitman. Together they made Cronenberg's first body horror film, They Came From Within, aka Shivers, which was released October 10, 1975. A film that was unceremoniously panned by Canadian journalist Robert Fulford, that it made securing funding for his next two film projects difficult. And on top of that, it resulted in Cronenberg being kicked out of his apartment due to a morality clause in the lease. Here's the trailer for your listening and enjoyment.
2: If you think you're not afraid of the dark, if you think you have a strong stomach, if you feel nothing can shock you, if you say you don't scare easily, if you believe you've seen everything, then prepare yourself for a motion picture that takes you beyond fear beyond your wildest nightmares and brings you face to face with terror beyond the power of priest or science to exercise what are they? raging demons from another world bloodthirsty creatures that must be killed or incarnations of absolute evil they possess men women, and children, and drive them to acts of unbelievable horror. No one is safe from them. No power on earth can stop them. The only escape is death. If this picture doesn't make you scream and squirm, you'd better see a psychiatrist
1: with almost triple the budget of They Came From Within and well-known porn star Marilyn Chambers portraying the lead, Rabid, Infected Cinema's April 8th, 1977. It has been heralded as a personal and modern take on the vampire movie. After getting into a motorcycle accident, Rose and her boyfriend Hart are rushed to the Keloid Clinic for plastic surgery as there's no official hospital close by. Suffering from severe burns, Dr. Kelloid performs a radical procedure on Rose involving genetically neural grafts to help her damaged body. Over one month later, Rose suddenly awakes from her coma, screaming and unknowingly thirsty for human blood. What follows is mass chaos as Rose spreads a new outbreak of rabies. Check out the trailer.
0: All around her, people are dying, and only Rose knows why. You
3: gotta come quick. You gotta come quick and get me.
0: It's Rose. It's gotta be. Something's happened to Rose. Health officials have said they consider the outbreak of the new strain of rabies as being potentially the worst of this century. Don't scream. Don't panic. He's dead. And the dead can't hurt the living rabbit.
2: The Prime Minister was reluctant to officially declare a state of emergency, but as any citizen in the streets can tell you, martial law has come to Montreal. Shooting down the victims is as good a way of handling them as as we have got. Stop!
0: You can't trust your mother. Your best friend. The neighbor, next door. One minute, they're perfectly normal. The next, Rabid. Bray, it doesn't happen to you. Rabid.
1: Rabid was followed by The Brood on June 1st, 1979 a terrifyingly personal film that spawned from Cronenberg's tumultuous divorce and child custody battle with Margaret Hinson. Cronenberg has stated that Samantha Agar's character Nola possesses some of the characteristics of his ex. Well, that's creepy and funny, since Nola's suppressed anger manifests itself into creatures that target any threat to her or her family. Oh, there's so much more to it than that, That's really all I can say without spoiling the film. I will add this. Oliver Reed plays her psychotherapist and subjects her to a controversial technique called psychoplasmics. Cue the trailer.
0: They come from the unknown, and they're here now, hiding, waiting to strike. You can feel their presence all around you. Never before have you come this close to the edge of terror. Never before have you faced anything so strange and sinister, so bizarre and unnerving. Never until now. David Cronenberg's The Brood. You can run, you can hide, and hope they won't find you, but you won't escape. Once unleashed, the brood will destroy anyone who gets in their way. David Cronenberg's ultimate experience in inner terror. Starring Oliver Reed and Samantha Egar. brood, they're waiting
1: for you. Scanners that exploded onto screens on January 16th, 1981. Now, we reviewed this film for episode 18, the 1981 special. As a follow-up, in that review, I complained that the movie starts rather blandly and that it should have opened with the exploding head sequence. Well, when you know it, That's exactly how the movie was supposed to start. Test audiences found it so disturbing that they couldn't connect with anything that came after it. Security Corporation ConSec, under program head Dr. Ruth, planned to recruit scanners, people with powers of mind control and telekinesis. You know, just like that chick in Friday the 13th Part 7, Brandon's favorite movie of all time. Ultimately, this is good scanner versus evil scanner. But being a Cronenberg film, there's so much more to the story. What I will say is that Dr. Ruth sure likes his ephemeral. This was the film that sealed Cronenberg as a cult director with a growing fan base in the US. Here's the trailer.
2: I would like to scan all of you in this room,
3: one at a time. I I must remind you that the uh, scanning experience is usually a painful one, sometimes resulting in nosebleeds, earaches, stomach cramps, nausea, sometimes other symptoms of a similar nature. At this point, I'd like to call for volunteers. Just uh, sit right here, please.
0: I'd, I'd like you to think of something specific. Do I have to close my eyes? It doesn't matter. All right,
3: yes. I have something. The mind force, scanners, their thoughts can kill.
1: It was probably around this time when David Cronenberg was offered the chance to direct Star Wars Episode VI, at that point, Revenge of the Jedi, but he declined. In his words, I was approached by Lucasfilm, and it didn't take long for them to realize that maybe that wasn't a good idea. You're really restricted by the format that's been established. So for a really inventive or innovative director, that's like being put in a straitjacket and the visual style's been established, and the characters have been cast. I mean, you're not involved in casting the leads, which is, of course, for a director, a hugely important thing. What followed was a film entitled Videodrome, released February 4th, 1983.
3: Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Ren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while ever since what? Since I first saw videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to. Normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome. Videodrome, Videodrome. starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures.
1: Now, while I enjoy, the came from within. Rabbit, the Brood, and Scanners. And as I look back on these films, that all share similar mood and thematic elements, albeit different stories, one could view they came from within as a first draft, Rabbit a second, the Brood a third, Scanners a fourth, all building to what I consider to be David Cronenberg's masterpiece, Videodrome this may seem like an obvious statement since I would assume as a filmmaker one would want to grow with each subsequent film. However, if you watch all five in order, which is not a challenge but a task that I implore you all to do, I think you'll see what I mean. Now, if you compare to the works of other horror directors, say like John Carpenter, you'll know that although Carpenter has a distinct style thematically, his movies are all quite different. Actually, I would say Dario Argento is the only other big-name horror director to follow this structure. And what I mean by this structure is, once again, a totally different style and subtext to Cronenberg, but constantly revisiting the same style and themes within their own bodies of work. It's almost as if they are remaking, but also expanding upon their previous film. In the case of Cronenberg, doctors, scientists, and technology alter nature's course, inadvertently creating parasitic inner demons and mind-adjusting hallucinations that manifest themselves into the flesh, creating mass chaos. While this may be an oversimplification of his works, it was fun to make up and say nevertheless. Of course, you can see that this trend continues. The Dead Zone, which was released October 21st, 1983, is in my mind one of the best Stephen King adaptations and, at the time, Cronenberg's most mainstream film. Receiving mostly favorable reviews and grossing just shy of $21 million on a budget of $10 million, it was a modest hit. However, Brandon did mention this on his Hidden Gems episode last week. And you know what? I agree. This seems to get overlooked. Modest hit or not... Not a lot of people talk about this film, and it is phenomenal. If 2017 is Exploding Heads horror movie podcast, Year of the Slasher, then 1983 was the year of David Cronenberg. He gave us two absolutely fantastic horror films. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I know that was three thank yous, but who's, who's counting? The Fly flew in the theaters on August 15th, 1986, produced by Mel Brooks and featuring a lot of gooey gore effects that turned off mainstream audiences, the film nevertheless pulled in 37.5 million on a budget of 15, which made it Cronenberg's biggest hit to date. And can you believe it? In 2008, an opera of the fly, composed by Howard Shore and directed by David Cronenberg, was performed in Paris and Los Angeles. This is something that I wish I saw. 1988, enter Dead Ringers, released on September 23rd, and carrying the super cool tagline, two bodies, two minds, one soul. Dead Ringers tells a strange story of indistinguishable twin gynecologists who are extreme opposites in personality and the deterioration of their relationship over a woman. Jeremy Irons plays both twins in two performances that are next to perfect. Strangely ignored by the Oscars, Irons did win the Best Actor Award two years later for a movie entitled Reversal of Fortune, and he thanked David Cronenberg in his acceptance speech. Okay guys, that's where we're going to stop. But remember, Cronenberg's filmography doesn't stop here. Just the spotlight. Well, right after I list my top five David Cronenberg films, that is. Number 5. Scanners. Telekinesis. Manipulated and weaponized by a corporation. Scanners is good. I mean, it might be great, but I find the performance by Stephen Lack, well, lacking. (laughs) So much so that it actually hinders my overall enjoyment of the film. I would love for Cronenberg to revisit this, update this. I mean, I know there's a Scanners 2 and a 3, and I believe two Scanner movies as well, but they all, well... They all kind of sucked. And now more recently, in 2016, we had The Mind's Eye. And that promoted itself as a Scanners sequel we never got. And it's definitely fun. And the gore is totally in check. But I, I just wish there was a little bit more meat to that story. Anyway, it, it's worth checking out. And of course, so is Scanners. Because at the end of the day, it contains the best fucking exploding head in movie history. That's right, the best. And it came out in 1981. Now, I watched all these films again for this show, and I came in higher than when we reviewed it on Exploding Heads uh, last year. Uh, This is an 8 out of 10. Number four, Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers won the Genie Award for Best Canadian Film of 1988, also Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Actor for Jeremy Irons, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, Musical Score, and Sound. I mean, the genies are the Canadian equivalent of the Oscars. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, Dave. (laughs) Now, I've heard so many a horror fan cry, it's boring. And while it's definitely slower paced, it's still hauntingly creepy. I mean, this is a film that gets under your skin. Nine out of ten. Number three, The Fly. In my opinion, one of the only other remakes, John Carpenter's A Thing Is The Other, that tops the original movie. Yes, it's gory, and Cronenberg supposedly toned it down, but it's fascinating to watch. The Mega Dream sequence almost feels like a misstep, but I think Cronenberg got a hearty chuckle keeping that in. And I just have to reiterate, I really wish I saw the opera for this. I mean, (laughs) that would have been amazing. 9 out of 10. Number 2, The Dead Zone. As I mentioned earlier, this is an underrated gem. It's so cool that Brandon mentioned this film on his solo cast as well. It's one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. Christopher Walken is perfect in the role. I mean, if you haven't checked this out, watch it. If you haven't watched it in years, check it out again. It's creepy as all hell, nine and a half out of ten. Number one. Videodrome. James Wood's character Max Ren, the CEO of Civic TV, A direct reference to City TV. You know that station I mentioned earlier that played Cannibal Girls over and over and over again? Well, he's on the hunt for something new. This leads him to Videodrome. A quote-unquote pirated satellite signal featuring plotless snuff TV of torture and murder. However, the show is just a skin for a transmitted signal that causes a brain tumor in the viewer, turning them into programmed assassins. But that's really just scratching the surface. Once again... You really owe it to yourself to watch this movie if you haven't or rewatch it for the umpteenth time. This is a solid 10 out of 10. Okay, here it is. My top 10 Canadian horror films. But first, the rules. Rules, you might ask? Yes, rules. I'm not going to do any long descriptions. I try to keep everything short and sweet. I want you to seek the films out on your own if you haven't already seen them. Or, once again, rewatch them if you have. Only one Cronenberg film was allowed. (laughs) I wonder which one made the cut. Co-productions were not allowed. Meaning, Martyrs, February, and The Witch are not contenders. I say this because they would have all made it into my top ten. So what did make the list? Number eleven. Yep, I'm already pulling the good old Dr. Orlick cheat. Okay, well, call it a fucking bonus. What do you want from me? So, bonus number 11. Pin, A Plastic Nightmare, 1988. I bet there were a few of you out there wondering why this movie hadn't been mentioned yet. Well, truth be told, I was trying to save some titles to reveal on this list and have a little bit of suspense in the show. Anyway, Pin is a great psychological horror. Back in the day... My 15-year-old mind too easily dismissed it when I first watched it in 1989. Thankfully, I've revisited this movie a few times since. I won't spoil anything. Well, wait, let me take that back. Maybe one thing. There's mannequin sex. We're talking mannequin 2 on the move here. But that's it. I won't say anything else. Just check this movie out. I score it an 8 out of 10. Number 10. Girl House, 2014. A self-described Halloween-style slasher for the digital age, it follows a beautiful young college student who, needing money for tuition, moves into a webcam house that streams X-rated content over the internet. A crazy fan hacks into the system, locates the house, and stalks the girls. Now, I thought that this was a fun modern slasher, and it totally surprised me. I mean, it's not going to be for everyone because of the subject matter, you know, the webcams, nudity... You're not going to get any complaints from me. I thought it had all the right slasher movie ingredients and it mixed them perfectly. I scored this an 8 out of 10. Number 9. Pontypool, 2008. Now as a side story. A buddy of mine worked on this film and never mentioned it. I, I saw his name in the credits when I watched the movie and I immediately hounded him for some info. He's like, oh oh yeah, Pontypool. That was a fun movie. That, that's it. That's all I got. Nothing else. Anyway, the movie itself is bizarre, but it's also a fascinating take on a zombie-slash-infected movie. It's also another one of the one-location-style films. It's set in a radio station, and a former shock jock-turned-radio-announcer is doing his show. Now, there's a blizzard outside, so they're kind of stuck in the radio station. As the show progresses, there are call-ins, and the call-ins describe chaos happening from the outside. We learn about riots and attacks and pretty much all hell breaking loose. What's the cause? You have to watch the movie to find out. Pontypool was directed by Bruce McDonald, who directed a, a ton of Canadian films. He also did Hellions in 2015, another film that wasn't really well received by the Exploding Heads crew. Anyway, Pontypool scores an 8 out of 10. Number 8. We've got a tie. I kid you not. No, I'm dead serious. American Mary, 2012, and Ginger Snaps, 2000. Okay, as I mentioned, Ginger Snaps awoke the Canadian horror scene, and it was a great take on the werewolf movie as well. American Mary was directed by the Soska sisters. Soska sisters. I love that. It's a twisted take on the rape revenge film, and it takes body horror to another level. Funny enough, it was supposedly loosely based on their experiences in the film industry while trying to sell their first film, Dead Hooker in the Trunk. Wow! Admittedly, the second half of American Mary is not quite as engaging as the first, but the film still packs a serious punch. Alright, I realize I cheated on number 8, but both films are fantastic, and both films star Catherine Isabel, so somehow that makes it all work out in the end, right? Now, the less you know about American Mary going in, the better. I went in fairly blind and was blown away. I'm not going to say any more about the movie. Ginger Snaps, we briefly talked about earlier. I'm not going to get in major detail, but there's a fun fact, as my buddy Vince always says. During this film's production, the Columbine High School Massacre and the W.R. Myers High School shooting took place. Well, this caused public controversy over the film's horror themes and the fact that it received funding from Telefilm Canada. Now, some critics panned this film because they thought the puberty metaphor was too obvious. I actually think that was the whole point. That's the tongue in cheek. That's what makes this film fun and really enjoyable. Now, I score American Mary and Ginger Snaps both eight out of 10. There's a trend going on here. Number seven, The Changeling, 1980. Now here, is a creepy-ass ghost story that scared the shit out of me as a young kid, and it continues to scare me to this day. I will never forget images of a wheelchair and a bouncing ball going down some stairs. Those are embedded in my psyche forever. The screenplay is based upon events that writer Russell Hunter claimed he experienced while living in the Henry Treat Rogers Mansion of Denver, Colorado. As with most ghost stories, this one unravels slowly, but it still holds up today. Eight out of 10. Number six. Prom night, prom night, <laughs> prom night, 1980. I mean, come on, it's carry me to Halloween, the ultimate mashup, or smashup. It has Jamie Lee Curtis, it has Leslie Nielsen, it has a mass killer with non-stu Italian jello, It has a couple of great kills. It also has a lot of dancing and a few dopey scenes. But what slasher doesn't have dopey scenes? I'm going to tell you the old VHS prints sucked. I have the DVD, which is better. But truth be told, the blue remains the best version out there. And in case you're wondering, the sequels are a name only. 8 out of 10. Number 5. The Editor 2014. The Editor is a love note slash parody of Italian Galileo films. Yes, I said Galileo. It's another Exploding Heads Inside joke. I mean, check out the old episodes, to be in on them all. And then you can decide whether or not they're funny. Now, while the newer films Masks and Francesca play it straight, the Editor is tongue-in-cheek, but amazing to take in, nevertheless. It's like me in the sack. (laughs) The group at Astron 6 got everything right. The lighting the music, the dubbing, the kills, the gore, okay, there are a couple of slapstick moments that weren't necessary, but they by no means ruined the overall enjoyment of this film. Eight and a half out of ten. Number four, My Bloody Valentine, 1981. Call it a tax shelter slasher, if you dare, My Bloody Valentine is one of the best. Suffering, for years in an edited R rated version, the uncut print was finally released in 2009 when the remake was coming out. So, who said remakes were good for nothing? Now, I talked about this earlier, I've talked about this on other shows, and we're going to be talking about it again this year on Exploding Heads. As of right now, this movie scores an 8.5 out of 10. Number 3 5150 Elms Way, 2009. Wow, this movie sucker punched me. I don't know how it passed by me in 2009, but I missed it. I went in with no idea of what to expect. I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't read anything. Other than knowing that it was made in Quebec and that it's in French with English subtitles, I knew nothing else. If you haven't seen it, it's on iTunes. Watch it. I won't say too much, I just want to set the story up. 5150 Elm's Way is located at the end of a quiet street. The main character, Yannick, falls off his bike, cuts himself, and walks up to the house to ask if he can clean up his wounds. There you go. That's it. Admittedly, at two points, I got a little frustrated with the actions of the main character. However, this can be easily explained as part of his overall character arc. That's all I'll say. Watch it tonight. Nine out of ten number two black christmas 1974 oh black christmas why did it take me to the age of 18 to finally see you maybe because i was still catching up on all the 80 slashers and didn't want to jump back to 74. some call you boring hell maybe i've even uttered those words at one point but the magic of you why the fuck am i talking to the movie the magic of this film is that it still manages to get under your skin The nasty phone calls, the POV killer, that fucking eye, and without spoiling it for those of you who still haven't seen it, the ending. Although the topic of many arguments, it's still eerily satisfying. Well, unless you're Dave fucking Z. You see, the movie isn't perfect, and therein lies its charm. I mean, it has too many characters. Some are necessary. We need the victims, in this case, a group of sorority sisters. We have a killer. We've got comic relief through the den mother, whatever the fuck she is. But then we get like the dad that visits who looks like Old Man Winter. We've got a murder of a little girl in town. It gets a little muddy in the middle, but it picks up again for the last act. Black Christmas is a film that I revisit year over year. And it scores a nine and a half out of ten. Number one. Well, boys and girls, here it is. The moment of truth. It's kind of anticlimactic, actually, because my number one Canadian horror film was actually my number one David Cronenberg film. Let's hear it for Video Videodrome, Videodrome. 1983. All right, like I said, anticlimactic. But I love this movie. There is so much going on in this film that I feel like I'm still absorbing and learning things after my 20th-something watch. I'll leave you with a little story. In my first year film studies, we watched Videodrome, and how to write an essay on what the ending meant. Why did it play out the way that it did? Why did Cronenberg film it the way that he did? I'm talking angles. Why did James Woods grab the chains? Why did he close his eyes? Everything. Well, I'm not a great essay writer. In fact, I flat out suck. I, I, know, I know it's hard to believe since the show is so meticulously put together, but it's true. I barely passed with a 56% on that paper. Now, I still have that essay somewhere but I cannot for the life of me find it. I searched high and low for it to be part of the show. So in typical Exploding Heads fashion, I'll leave it as a cliffhanger. I'll tell you, if I find it, we'll revisit this. You know what's funny? Cronenberg was actually really unhappy with the original idea for the ending. In fact, script rewrites were happening daily for the whole movie. But he actually wrapped production to work on the ending and then return to shoot it three months later. You know, instead of this hindering the movie, this whole process seems to have given it a life of its own, as if it was being created organically on the set. Like I said before, this is a 10 out of 10. Wow! Well, everyone, it's that time. Time to shut down the exploding headquarters for another week. I'm looking forward to recording an old-school group episode of Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast on Sunday. We're tackling the Hellraiser trilogy and other things. You guys know how the show works by now. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed all of the solo casts. Will we do this again? (laughs) Who the hell knows? Remember, join our Facebook group, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at EHHorrorPodcast and Rate the show. Whether you listen on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever, give us a rating. Write us a review. We really appreciate it. This is Christian Luciani saying, Long live the new flesh.